0: feel most alive when I feel like I'm understanding someone else's story or sharing my story with them, you know, that's when I feel like life is most worth living.
1: Brian Smith here and welcome to the Dream Path podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Amber Seeley is on the show. Born in England and raised in Santa Fe, Amber is a Los Angeles-based actor, screenwriter, producer, and director. She has directed multiple feature films, including How to Cheat, as well as No Light and No Land Anywhere. Her latest film, No Man of God, is now in theaters and is available to purchase on demand wherever you stream your movies. Starring Elijah Wood, Luke Kirby, and Robert Patrick, no Man of God follows the real-life relationship that developed between FBI Special Agent Bill Hagmire and serial killer Ted Bundy over the last four years of Bundy's life before he was executed. Agent Hagmire was the only criminal profiler from his unit who volunteered to interview Bundy, trying to get inside the mind of a serial killer, while also trying to find out, literally, where the bodies were buried for the benefit of the victim's families. Bundy would ultimately confess to killing 30 girls and women. In last week's duocast, with my producer Jason, I told Jason that there would be at least one Oscar nomination for No Man of God, which dives deep into one of the most fascinating on-screen cop-criminal relationships since Silence of the Lambs. In this interview, Amber talks about how she found her way into acting and then film as a screenwriter and director. She also talks about what attracted her to directing this film, even though Bundy had been the subject of other films and what it was like trying to find the perfect Ted Bundy during casting. Finally, Amber wraps up the interview with some advice for folks wanting to break into the film industry. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with the immensely talented Amber Seeley. Amber Seely, welcome to Dream Path Podcast.
0: Thank you. Nice to be here.
1: So we're here to talk about a pretty special film, No Man of God. And for the benefit of my listeners, rather than me, describing this film. Can you give us your nutshell version of what this film is about and why it is different and important to see versus all of the other work that's out there on Ted Bundy and you know documentary and narrative and otherwise?
0: Oh, okay. That's a good question. I mean, part of me It's like, I want you to describe it because I love hearing, <laughs> that's my favorite thing is hearing other people describe my films, but I'm going to try let's see um well first of all it's about bill hagmeyer who is a real life um fbi profiler and ted bundy who we all know and it's about the friendship uh that the two of them formed when bill was first starting out being an fbi profiler and he went to the florida state prison to interview bundy to try to they were some of the first profilers in the world when reagan started the the part of the fbi that that handles profilers and so he went to interview bundy to try to understand the serial killer mindset with the hopes that they could then you know, stop future crimes from happening. So it's essentially about their friendship, their relationship, and the impact that sitting and talking to Ted Bundy had on Bill, had on his own sense of, I guess you could say, morality or his own conscience. And it also asks the kind of larger question of us, the audience, which is, why are we so interested in Bundy? And why do we know Bundy's name and not the victim's names? And why do we continue to make movies about Bundy? And by the way, I'm as guilty as the next person for that, right? Right. So why is it different to, you know, so why is it different to other Bundy films, you know, or how is it different? You know, I can't, I guess, totally answer that question. All I know is that for me, when I read the script, you know, my first, before I had read it, my first thought was like another Bundy movie. Like what, Do we, does the world need another Bundy movie and me direct a Bundy movie? You know, if you're familiar with my work, I'm not a natural fit. You wouldn't, no one that I know of would have assumed, oh yeah, an Amber Seely Bundy film. But then when I read it, I thought, I actually have something to say about this. Like I had a reaction to the script and I felt like there was a kind of a new piece of information. Mm -hmm. One of those was that felt like my interpretation of Bundy, I hadn't seen, and the other Bundy films that came before mine are excellent. You know, this is not not to disparage them, but I hadn't seen an interpretation of Bundy that to me felt like how I saw him. So that, I felt like I wanted that to be, you know, to be kind of part of the narrative or the canon of films on Bundy. But I also, and this kind of leads to your last question about why why is it important? I also felt like there was a whole piece of the equation missing in in you know the other Bundy films. And again, this is not to disparage them. It's just that you know it's just my piece that I felt like was important to add, which is that the story is not only Bundy's. It's also the it's also kind of very much in the women's you know a woman's experience. Mm-hmm. Every woman I know knows what it's like to walk down a dark alley, hear footsteps behind you, and get scared. We are all trained when we go off to college to get mace to hold keys in our hand with the key sticking out so we can, you know, stab someone if we have to, you know, we all know that our bodies can be at risk. And so to me, that's a part of this narrative. And so it was important to me to infuse the film with these kind of silent women who are both looking at Bill and looking at Bundy and kind of not only having to experience the listening to what they're saying and what they're doing, but also essentially looking at us and asking, why are you so interested in this, Mm -hmm. you know? yeah and i'm as guilty of that as an expert you know like uh, um it's 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 complicated i guess i think that two things can exist at the same time one it can be wrong that there are so many bundy movies and there, that, that there, are and it, it can be true that there are too many and it could also be true that there needed to be one more this one and that i had something to say and something new to add to the conversation mm-hmm. um so it's a, it's a really complicated it's a complicated issue and i don't i don't know that i have the answer but i I like asking those questions.
1: So Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it, what I like about the film is that it stands alone on its own. Even if you have no understanding of the history of Ted Bundy, if you're, you know, a, a 20-something or even a teenager and you like the concept of watching a relationship develop over time between two diametrically opposed people, you've got this devout Catholic, and uh, I, I assume he's Catholic, but you know he's got the cross dangling from his uh, rearview mirror, and he prays every morning. That's Elijah Wood's character. Yeah. And then uh, Luke Kirby, who just perfectly encapsulated the essence of Ted Bundy, and not just Ted Bundy, but the sinister way he looks down and just kind of looks up, and the yeah,
0: he's got the mannerisms down. Yeah, he, he to me, I mean, I'm definitely yeah. biased.
1: I think he's the best Bundy. <laughs> oh, yeah, and I I saw the Zach Efron Bundy. I thought he did a great job, and I actually had dinner with uh, Joe Berlinger at uh, Sundance a couple of years ago, and and talked oh. to him about that film. But yeah, you know, it's a different film. And what what you've done with this movie is you've made a standalone. It just holds up completely on its own as a relationship, a friendship evolving over time that's extremely complicated and. At the end, you're left with the, the. This is what I love about film. You know, it leaves you with an uneasy feeling of this duality of man thing, where you know we're all capable of good and evil. And I think Ted Bundy or or uh, Luke Kirby's you know character did a great job of making Elijah Woods' character, Bill Hagemeyer, understand how close human beings are to each other, even though one has committed a horrific crime. One has not. There's there's commonality there that you were exploring. Yeah. And I was just riveted by it.
0: Oh, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that good and evil exists in all of us, quite simply, and that we all have to constantly make choices. We can decide to forgive the person who cuts us off on the freeway. We can decide to be kind to the person who's annoying talking to us in the supermarket or you know, like we have to constantly make choices. And and I at least try to uh, and I'm not saying I'm successful at this, but I try to constantly like approach things from a space of um, love and understanding. And I think that, you know, certainly a part of what I loved about the film was the kind of mental swordplay that the two of them are, you know, like they definitely form a friendship. They definitely had a, um, love is not cr- quite the right word, but they they had a love for each other. So, you know, that's true, but they also were both performing for each other. They both wanted something else from each other. So to me, that was so interesting. And, you know, as you watch, as you said, you know, it can stay, it's a relationship that develops and, and you can, even if you're not very interested in Bundy, you can be interested in watching that, how the relationship develops, the child of trust forms and
2: mm-hmm. um,
0: how they annoy each other or get close to each other. And that was always really interesting to me. was like the, you know, well, what are they saying to each other? And then what do they really want from each other? What's underneath that? And despite, you know, them having these kind of ulterior motives, a trust and a friendship was formed. And even Bill Hagmeier himself would say at the end, you know, yeah, I was friends with him. And Bundy w- thought Bill was his best friend. And he tried to will all of his earthly possessions to Bill at the end of his life. He wanted to. And Bill <laughs> actually refused and said he didn't he didn't want them. But, you know, when you ask Bill, you know, were you friends with him? You say, yeah, you know, we were friends. And I think he should have died earlier. I think they should have, you know, put him to the chair earlier. So I think it's, you know, that's kind of what I love about the film is that all of these different things can exist at the same time, both on a micro scale and a macro scale. Right. So Mm
2: -hmm. we
0: can be good and evil at the same time. And that, you know, grows up into, it can be wrong that we make more Bundy movies and it can be right that we make more Bundy movies. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, it's this grain of like the duality of things and how that kind of grows exponentially in terms of when you talk about anything to do with the film, that really fascinates me. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, we are all capable of good and evil and, and, um, i think that's not to say that bundy is not a psychopath because i do believe that he is a psychopath and i think there was something just wrong with his brain mm-hmm. that said i think that when bill says you know bill really said to bundy you know yeah i could kill someone you know i think bill i think he meant that he could if he had to and i i i am personally against the death penalty i i don't support the death penalty and yet if someone hurt my child I might go and kill them myself, you know. So it's like we're all capable of these conflicting
1: Mm
0: -hmm. ideologies, I guess.
1: Yeah, humans are walking contradictions. (laughs) Yeah, you've done a really great job of of capturing that concept on film, and also distinguishing this film from other films, like specifically Berlinger's narrative film and his documentary, which are very plot driven. Um, And then this happens, and that happens, and you know, you're you're seeing Bundy. Goes to jail and then he escapes from jail and there's not a relationship that's being examined necessarily in those movies and that's what I I love about No No Man of God is it's just like a constant study of this relationship, you know, in my dinner with Andre sort of (laughs) (laughs) format.
2: One of
0: our producers, Daniel Noah, who I love, he he, when I kind of pitched him my concept, he was like it's like if Terence Malick made my dinner with Andre and I was like, yeah, that's that's it. That really was kind of what I was going for. Um, but you know, it, you're, you're totally right. I mean, I love that you said you think it's it can stand alone from the sort of normal Bundy true crime stuff. Cause that was very much what I wanted to do. You know, I am not, it's not that I'm not a true crime fan, but like I'm not entrenched in that genre. I watch some of the true crime stuff that comes out, but not all of it. I'm, I'm not a person that watches every single one and is really clued into like all of that genre stuff and horror stuff and thriller stuff, you know, I see some, but not a lot. And I really liked that. I don't know if this is weird, but I like that. I was kind of an outsider to it. I felt like I was like, well, Hey, what about people who are not super interested in Bundy? Like what would that person, what movie would they make? And this is what that is, you know? So I hope that the movie appeals to people who are not only You know people who are interested in true crime and interested in bundy that's that was my my attempt was like you know that the movie would be a movie that stood alone as a piece of art separate Mm. from it being about who it's about because it's also about good and evil uh, you know what is it like to sit so close to evil? How do our choices affect other people? Does God exist? What does believing in God mean? You know, so it's it's also about all of those uh, very universal themes. It's not just about Bundy. And I would in fact even argue that it's more a Bill Hagmire movie than it is a Ted Bundy movie.
1: Yeah, I think you're right because it's obviously fascinating to watch Luke Kirby. Yeah, in- encapsulate <laughs> Ted Bundy in the way that he did, but to see the innocence this the juxtaposition between Luke Kirby and Elijah and Elijah being this very earnest innocent guy who comes in almost with zero judgment mm. about him I mean he intentionally is not imposing any sort of judgment on Bundy for a purpose yeah. not because he approves of what he did but because he has an agenda and it's to understand yeah and i think that just shows this level of sophistication and you know, a very evolved human being that Hegmaier was, and obviously he made it through the ranks and became a very high-ranking official because of that and his brilliance in that way. Now, in terms of the the casting, were Elijah and Luke already cast by the time you were attached to the film to direct?
0: No. So Elijah was Elijah. Uh, you know, it's his. Uh, he's a partner in the production company Spectrovision. So
2: okay,
1: he,
0: they had been trying to make the movie for about I don't know four or five years before I had come on. And at some point, Elijah decided that he was really interested in Bill's journey and in that character. And I was really, so when I came on, he was already attached. And I was thrilled with that because I've always been a fan of Elijah's. And, and Elijah has a natural empathy and, like you said, a lack of judgment and a kindness to him. And that's a similar thing that Bill has. And so I thought, this is really interesting casting, you know, and, and also who wouldn't want to sit across from those big blue eyes. And I mean, I, you know, you sit across from him, you want to tell him everything, right? So I could see, <laughs> and Bill had that kind of um, thing where you sit opposite him and you just want to tell him everything. He's very warm and just, he invites you to, to share with him. Mm-hmm. And he's very generous with what he shares as well, which I think, you know, when you tell someone something private, they're more likely to tell you something private. And so he engenders that kind of dialogue. Luke was not attached when I came on it. Um, I, you know, obviously that was the big part of casting was like, well, who's gonna play Bundy, right? And Luke, I have always been a fan of his. I've been wanting to work with him and he just popped into my head and we offered him the role through his agents and he turned it down. And I was like, okay, I understand that. And, I want to talk to him. Like, let's you know, can I just speak to him? Can I get him to know me and get him to know like my take on the movie? And um, because I can understand why he would turn it down, it's for the the same reasons why when the script came to me, I was like another Bundy movie, you know? Like, so I related to his um, reluctance. And so we have friends in common. I reached out to him and we met. um, This is right at the beginning of the pandemic. We met in a park and we had a socially distanced walk. We walked for like three hours and we just talked. And and then it became really apparent that we had similar uh, concerns about making another Bundy movie, you know, and we were worried about, are we saying something new? Why are we putting this into the stratosphere? You know? And once I pitched, you know, my vision to him, luckily he was, he was on board. Yeah, I just couldn't, I couldn't envision making it with anybody else. He was so perfect. And I, yeah, so I'm so happy. I, I, I strong armed him into doing it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, a three hour walk through the park sounds like a you know, you, you did something right there. He, he reminds me. I, I
0: got on my knees and I. I no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he he's he's an interesting guy. I I haven't seen a lot of his stuff before seeing this film, but I've seen a few interviews that you guys have done together. At least the Collider interview back in when uh, you Tribeca. Yeah. And um, he reminds me of the type of guy, almost like a Michael Jordan of acting. Where if you ask Michael Jordan. How do you shoot so many three pointers so accurately? He's probably gonna scratch his head and be like, you know, I can't really. (laughs) It's not something I can articulate in words. You know, he he's in that zone of. Yeah. He's just so freaking talented, but it's not his comfort zone to be saying, "All right, this is you know, this is how I approached the role, and this is how I got into character and got past these challenges." He seemed to to kind of Very struggle, a yeah, yeah. But with Elijah, he just seems like a natural when it comes to you know, what is this movie about? And you're like, wow. I mean, he can just deliver, yeah. Like,
0: <laughs> oh no, we did. We were doing some press today together, and I was like, God, I'd love to have that gale to be so articulate. It sounds so smart and articulate. <laughs> He's really good at the interview that Elijah. Yeah, he's very, I mean, both of them are very smart and uh, mm-hmm. and just really good guys and and both so talented. You know, for me, I have nothing negative to say about working with either of them. It was just like pure, pure joy. Um, but yeah, Luke is very um, humble. I mean, they're both humble, but just because you had asked about Luke, you know, he he doesn't really like to talk about, I'm, I'm guessing, I can't say this for sure, but I don't think he really likes to talk about his process publicly like that. Right. But yeah, he's just so talented. And yeah, I mean, you should check out some of his other stuff. I I really loved him in Sarah Pauli's movie Take This Waltz. Um he also had a really great Canadian TV show called Slings and Arrows. Hmm. I think it's from the 90s maybe, but anyway, it's it's very it's very good with Rachel McAdams it kind of was there. I think it was one of their first big things they did.
1: Well, that's right, he's Canadian.
0: He's Canadian. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. He also he has that kind of eighties man look to him you know there's a very different form of masculinity and sort of what's considered sexy now from then mm. you know then yeah we were people were didn't weigh as much you know there wasn't so much of a like liking this big hulky kind of male thing it was more you right. know men were not as as into pumping up their upper body as they are now right so it was a different look it was a lankier look and bundy had that he was tall and thin and lucas tall and thin and and the way Luke sits to me as well, like his just his natural kind of body sort of a fluidity mm-hmm. that he has. Mm-hmm. That was also very of the time period for, you know. So that was another thing that I really liked about about him is that he felt very um vintage. Is that the right mm-hmm. word? You know? Yeah. He felt- yeah.
1: He, he does. I, I didn't think about that when I was watching it, but it makes sense now. I did notice though that the it is a period piece because you see, yeah. and I it was like was the fa- I went to high school between eighty six and ninety, so I was like, really, was I dressed like this? This is embarrassing. <laughs> That's you look like.
0: Well, you probably weren't wearing a prison uniform. You probably weren't.
1: Wearing- <laughs> no, no, not But just everybody else, you know, the detectives and you know the yeah. camera crews and and all the other characters. Just really bad. No, not a good era. <laughs> oh,
2: Really? I love
0: it. I'm totally eighties. Like I, I still have eighties clothes that they were my mom. My mom saved a lot of her clothes from the eighties and I'm so happy that she saved them.
1: Oh, nice. So, yeah. so they're coming back then or they never went out of style. Oh, I
0: think eighties has been back for a while. Yeah. High-waisted jeans and acid wash and yeah.
1: Very cool. <laughs> so what about Robert Patrick? I interviewed his brother who's in the band Filter, a couple of years ago, and he was talking about his brother Robert and their relationship. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. His little brother is a big rock star. So what were your thoughts about casting Robert? I was expecting, because he's kind of a bad guy, you know, or at least a really-
0: Terminator, yeah.
1: Macho, plays a lot of big, bad villain types. What were your thoughts with casting him? And I was surprised by the soft touch that he had in this film.
0: He would, well, he was also just a joy to work with. It's funny. So uh, with him, you know, he doesn't audition. You know, there are actors that get to the level. They don't audition really anymore. So it was an offer. and I had just been a fan of his, you know, I, again, like I knew his work and I, I had been a fan of his. So I offered him the part. And then <laughs> so I don't think he'll mind me saying this. He, you know, you have to ask the actors, like, can you just send a a photo of what you look like right now? And especially because it was pandemic times, no one had cut their hair in like eight months, you know, so everyone had these long beards and long hair and we need, you know, costumes, hair and makeup. They need to know what do they look like? Do I need to plan time for a haircut? You know, or have they gained weight? Have they lost weight? So they send an image and and Robert sent these shots of himself and he's, he's wearing no shirt, uh, like a bike, a leather biker jacket. Like yep. tattoos, and, and he's just like looking at the camera. Can we swear on this podcast? Yeah. Um, okay. Well, he's looking at the camera, like you know, fuck you, like I'm, a, you know, and I and I went, oh shit, what have I got myself into with this guy? And then um, he shows up, and uh, and he's just lovely and really fun to work with. And he was, uh, you know, really game to try anything and 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 do things. You know, I because so much of the movie is the two leads sitting in a room with nothing in their hands talking to each other and then a lot and then the second biggest part of the movie is uh Bill talking to Robert Patrick's character his boss in in a room not doing anything and I thought I got to have one actor doing something at some point you know so I would throw these things at Robert I was like you know what, you're, you're a guy who's, con- you're fastidious about your looks, you, you're flossing your teeth, you're shining your shoes, you know, and he was like, oh, this is great, I love it, you know, so he was really um, game yeah. to try, try anything, A really, really fun, big, big personality, but I'll never forget when he sent out, texted me that image, and I was like, oh, wow, this is, <laughs> this is not who I <laughs> thought he was.
1: <laughs> yeah. Th- that's exactly the way his brother, Richard described him. He, he, he just, you know, Richard's a, I think uh, a little bit younger than Robert and said, yeah, he's actually in a biker gang yeah. in California drives, you know, a Harley and wears all the leather and everything. And yeah. Richard is in awe of his brother and probably a little intimidated too. <laughs> I'm sure he's got beat up a few times. By him. Yeah.
0: Oh no. I was a little like, Oh God, Am I, uh, should I be scared of him? But he was a sweetheart. Yeah, no, he was great. But yeah, I, I was trying to figure out what the biker gang was. I was like, is this a religious biker gang? Like, I was trying to figure out what it was. I never <laughs> did figure it out, so i have to ask him.
1: <laughs> I, he'd probably have to kill you if he told you. So. I know,
0: you he can. might. Like, so maybe I won't, won't ask him.
1: <laughs> so the the writer, Kit Lesser, which is a pseudonym, I guess, for C. Robert Cargill, who wrote Dr. Strange, Sinister and Sinister 2. Do you have any insight into why he used a pseudonym for writing this script,
0: you know, I don't. I mean, I, I'm I'm a big fan of his, whatever name he uses. You know, I really I, I like him, and um, I like his writing. I think that um, I mean, he should. You know, he, he he would know better than me. I think it was just creative differences. You know, and I think that you know he has a brand, and you know uh, maybe this one didn't fit into that. But that's just me guessing. I don't know, but all I know is I'm a fan of his, and and we get along great, and um, you know, yeah, yeah. I think. it's creative
1: differences. Oh, okay. I'm always curious. I talk about Hollywood being kind of a black box in terms of what goes on behind the scenes and who's pulling the strings. And it's just fascinating to me when you see, you you have to do a little more digging to see who did the the writing. And then it was pretty easy to to find out that it was a pseudonym. I'm a fan of his too, but I think his other work, his work that he writes under his real name is so different from this film. It kind of made sense to you know, have a pseudonym.
0: I mean, I can understand it because I, you know, in a previous career, I, I was an audiobook uh, like performer. I was the voice of, of many audiobooks. And I, I did a lot of young, you know, y, YA young adult and kids audiobooks. And I, I kind of got myself known in that world. And then I started getting offered these kind of 50 shades of gray-esque, mm. you know, more sort of, and I was like, ah, I don't really want that, you know, the audience that knows me as reading The Princess Diaries to suddenly you know because i just it felt like it was sort of two different audiences and camps and so i did all the other adult mature stuff under a pseudonym Hmm. you know i think that you know we have to all be aware of our our brand and and what it is we're trying to say and i think there's so often creative differences in, in movies and you know how we do things and um you know and it's i think it's i'm a i'm a filmmaker who also writes and there's you know there's stuff that i added to the script you know and uh and i can completely you know i just i respect him i respect his choice and um yeah no there's no um no drama
1: i appreciate you sharing what you did about it i know sometimes it's sensitive stuff that you don't want to share but i appreciate that type of candor
0: i'm always very honest and probably too honest
2: sometimes
1: (laughs) as you may have noticed there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes and for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. So, I watched No Light and No Land Anywhere last night, just to get a sense of your other work. And I have to admit, that when I read the premise of the film, I was like, oh, "Okay, how artsy is this movie going to be? <laughs> you know, how contemplative is it going to be, and i.e. boring?" Yeah, because I I don't know. I I think our attention spans have really suffered in the last ten years with devices and yeah. you know just we need to be entertained. But I really enjoyed this film. It has so many surprises in it. The only thing that really wasn't a surprise was the meeting with her dad. I think everybody kind of knew where that was going.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. That's my real dad, by the way.
1: <laughs> Are you really? Yeah, yeah. He did a great job.
0: Yeah, he's not an actor, but uh, you know, there were so many things that kind of worked out cuz he's British. Yeah. And he had come over to the US and so that was kind of perfect that he had that, uh, you know. And he's very um emotionally like he doesn't like talking about emotions my dad at all, and I was like he, he's going to be perfect at this. <laughs> so yeah it was pretty fun to I, I think it was maybe a little traumatizing for him <laughs> to play that part but yeah no i mean i think well thank you for watching the film i appreciate it um but yeah i think that anyone who had seen any of my other films like i think i had said this before about me being kind of an outsider but i think you know i I wouldn't have been a natural fit to consider you know for no man of god and so right. that was part of what was so interesting to me was getting to getting to do no man of god after having done stuff like no light no land anywhere which is you know, as you say, much more indie and maybe much more in the kind of emotional realm than No Man of God is.
1: What I'm always interested in is where is the source of tension and conflict? And I try to identify that because I feel it, but I don't know where it's coming from. And in, in No Light and No Land Anywhere, there's multiple sources of tension and conflict. One is the quest to find her dad mm-hmm. and the conflict with the sister, or, you know, is that going to be a relationship? but i found the scenes in the hotel to be like edge of your seat tense scenes and i thought they were going to go in a way different direction yeah but you see this what i mean what you see is like this empowerment happening with her where she's doing something really risky and dangerous but she's also finding a way to flip the script in a way so that she's the one who is Making these two men feel like, yeah, oh my god, what do we, what do we get ourselves into here?
0: Yeah, and that's exactly what I was aiming for. So I love that you, because yeah, you know, you go into that scene thinking like, oh shit, what's going to happen to her? Like, you know, and and uh, and then it was really important to me that 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 scene be about that transfer of power,
1: mm-hmm.
0: essentially. You know,
1: yeah, that was great. Yeah. And with No Man of God, the source of tension for me, at least, was. Just the deadline. I mean the the due date or the expiration date of Ted Bundy and this information that Hagmeyer was trying to get, it's yeah,
0: is he gonna
1: yeah. It's it just a brilliant mechanism, I think, to create tension where as opposed to my dinner with Andre, <laughs> where's the tension in that? <laughs> <laughs> just the,
2: when's
0: my meal gonna come or yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, I I mean, there's nothing, there's no more sense of a ticking clock than a literal ticking clock to your execution, you know, and for Hagmeyer, I mean, that was such a powerful thing. I remember asking him, like, did it haunt you to hear the things that Bundy said to you? And, and he said, no, you know, what really haunted me was um, the times I had to go knock on someone's door and tell them that their daughter was dead, or, you know, or tell them that I, you know, couldn't find their daughter, didn't know what happened to her. You know, that's the stuff that kept him up at night. Mm-hmm. And so that's the tension for Bill is the, like, I want to get this information. You know, there are families there who want answers about their, their child, you know? Yeah. And, um, and it that, that really for him, those were really high stakes, you know? Um, because that was the literal stuff that kept him up at night.
1: Normally I try to get into a little bit of your artistic journey into film. And so if you have a couple of minutes, I, I, I really don't I feel badly that you haven't eaten all day, and it's the end of the day.
0: Oh no, it's okay. I shoved a bunch of crackers in my mouth before, so that, <laughs> they've settled in. I'm not dizzy anymore.
1: <laughs> I'll try to abbreviate my questions a little bit. So, you, I understand you were born in England, yeah, and raised in Santa Fe, right? Yeah, yep. So, at what age did you move to Santa Fe?
0: Three.
1: Three. So, like
0: just before three, yeah.
1: So you probably from a, I guess from a. Uh, formation standpoint, I, I would imagine you didn't bring anything with you from England that was formative because you were so young.
0: My dad, he's British.
1: <laughs> uh, that's true. But
0: but no, yeah. I mean, although I I went back to England, so I went to get a master's degree. I went to drama school in England and then stayed there for another seven or eight years. Hmm. And so, and that was like my you know my twenties. And so, it it was really formative for me actually as an artist um as and as a filmmaker because i i
1: worked to go back
0: yeah to go back and because that's really kind of where i found my voice and how i how i found how i write and how i create and it's really where i discovered that i was a director mm. i didn't know that i kind of i mean i didn't have any um, role models of female directors before i didn't know really i mean i knew theoretically that women could be directors but all the famous directors that i knew were men and then when i went to england i was working with a theater company called shunt and we would do what's called devised theater um, where we all would write and perform and, you know, do lighting and everything. And I started doing these performance art pieces alongside video art. And then I got more and more interested in the video art. And then from there, I produced and acted in a short film. And then from there, I was like, I want to make, I, I was also inspired by the dogma film movement that was going on in Europe at the time. Um, and from there, I was like, I want to make a feature. And I want, to, you know, like, it doesn't have to be a million dollars. I can just do like a ragtag DIY thing where i you know grab a camera and my friends and we shot in a friend's apartment and i made this feature um and i didn't know at the time in the us the kind of mumblecore movement was happening um you know i mean there have been many movements of this kind of diy aesthetic right right um but that's what kept me in and then i just fell in love with the whole process and um yeah from there i was really like it was a very organic transition into being a director but england did sorry answer your question yeah rambling but yeah england england was formative just not When i was three it was more formative. when i was
1: 20. and then growing up in santa fe i mean you can't get any more artsy than santa fe i mean that town is just filled with creatives and
2: yeah
1: it'd be hard not to to have some that rub off on you growing up in that community i've I've been to santa fe a few times i love it there
0: i love it i'm trying to convince my husband like can we move to santa fe um yeah i i santa fe is so special to me i mean the sky and the mountains like You know it's just they're one of a kind so beautiful Mm -hmm. but yeah i i was always interested in theater and performance and i have parents who have always been you know um artistic in some way and both my parents were photographers my dad used to be in a band he was a singer and and he's written poetry and uh was a writer and my mom also was a photographer and she was a theatrical producer and so they always just were you know a supporter and a lover of the arts and so they were totally happy when i was about five or six I started getting interested in performing it was like the first time where i felt like i did anything good or that i was good at anything it was the first time i got attention from grown-ups at being like good at something you know mm-hmm. uh i guess i was just attention seeking or whatever and then i i got into it and my parents always kept me in theater and yeah i always knew that i wanted to be involved in the telling of stories
1: well, I think you found a perfect fit in terms of exactly where you should be because this film was so well executed. It's a beautiful film. So kudos to your cinematographer. And I love hearing the origin stories of you know how people find their passion. And thank you for sharing about that. So I know it's changed so much over the years in terms of how you get into the business. Now people are making content on their phones, and they're being seen that way on TikTok and Instagram and YouTube. The old route used to be, you know, you move to Los Angeles, you become an intern, then a production assistant, then a writer's assistant, and work your way up that way, or you go to film school or art school. What advice do you have for young people now, and especially young women, who want to get into film and either act direct or write or all three
0: well first i just want to say that i want to encourage old women to get into this business oh i don't think we have 50 60 70 year old women making movies <laughs> i'd love some of them to start that would be cool mm-hmm. um but yeah to young people starting out i mean i think actually the most important thing is not really to do with the industry it's more to do with like the quality of your life you know this is a rough industry there's a lot of criticism there's a lot of rejection um there's a lot of like you, no you don't have enough money no you can't have that no you can't do that and so it's really important that you foster like a healthy life experience surrounding your your work life you know that you have friendships and relationships and a home life that is uh, that enriches you and that feels good you have somewhere nice and soft to land at the end of the day so that's something i always try to recommend and then um the other thing is, is that there's just no one path you know as you said you know now with tiktok and, and youtube and you know People are doing their own thing any which way, and you can make it work by, like you said, becoming an agent's assistant and working your way up, or you can make it work by just posting videos on TikTok. And there's just no one answer. It's really like, you just have to find your own path and just keep going. Mm -hmm. Because as I said, there's gonna be so much rejection and you just have to keep going despite that. And it can be quite painful at times. Um, I mean, you know, nobody likes harsh criticism, I don't think, and but you just gotta I don't know like I think that if it does if you if you if you want to stop that's great and you stop but there are people and that I consider myself one of them that just like the desire to tell stories and the way that they connect to humanity and even the earth is is through creating art and um, my child's coming in Um, and so you know for me that's just how it is and it's it's always going to be that way whether I'm uh, whether I'm writing or acting or directing you know to me it's it's the way i connect to other humans and the way i feel like in a sense it's like a way out of my of depression it's like i feel most alive when i feel like i'm understanding someone else's story or sharing my story with them you know that's when i feel like life is most worth living
1: nice yes. well put and i like your comment about older women and just older people in general getting into the industry because I know that there's a lot of creators out there that don't start until their 30s or 40s and Lynn Shelton was one of those creators. I think she might have been, I don't know, 40 before she made her first feature or maybe it was 35, but I know she got started later than a lot of directors.
0: So sad about her passing. She was um, an acquaintance of mine. Yeah, she I, I loved Lynn and her work. I don't know how old she was when she first started, but Yeah, I mean, I think our industry is a little bit too obsessed with the sort of young newcomer. You know, you always hear the story of the 22 year old and it's always a boy, 22 year old boy straight out of school who wrote this fantastic script and makes an amazing movie. And sure, it's an amazing movie, you know, but. To me, that's that that's an old that's a trope now. You know, mm-hmm. it's like I know about the twenty-two year old cool boy. Who, you know, I don't know about the twenty-two year old girl who makes an amazing movie, and I certainly don't know about the sixty-year-old woman who makes an amazing first movie. You know, mm-hmm. those are the stories that, to me at least, are interesting and, and new. And I wish that our industry had more um, grants and programs that were aimed at finding older story- storytellers, um, because I think we have so much to support the first-time filmmaker and the young filmmaker and uh you know the young filmmaker you know first of all they're probably living in an apartment that's like i don't know 500 bucks a month you know they don't have obligations like rent and healthcare and stuff you know to worry about and it's you know old it's i think it's much harder for older people to break into a new industry than it is for for young people Mm -hmm. you know who can just live on canned beans you know and don't have kids to support
1: is there a resource for people to go to and see what grants are available what opportunities like sundance labs are available or do you have to google it and search around and compile those resources yourself
0: unfortunately it's the latter yeah you just they're, they're everywhere i mean sundance certainly has on their website all of their programs but there's new york women in film they have a female over 40 writing grant there's ton, there are tons of different but yeah unfortunately there's not you know certain friends of mine sometimes will make like a google drive and compile but they also change, you know, there'll be a grant that's available for like five years and then the money runs out and it's not available. And so unfortunately you do have to just individually Google, you know, and I would recommend Googling, like, you know, if you're a, you know, queer Jewish person from Wisconsin, like Google that, cause there might be a local Wisconsin grant, you know? Um, hmm. So yeah, there's, there's, um, there are a lot of different things out there, but you kind of have to do, unfortunately do the research
2: on your own.
1: One last question, short films how important are short films on a person's resume or in their repertoire for showing what they can do versus a script or some other type of work product that showcases what they can do. I see it. There's just so many short films out there, and now they have short festivals, at the Aspen Short Fest, and all over the country, you're seeing that. But it costs money to do it. It's a lot of effort. I mean, it takes a whole crew of people to just like a regular film, except it's shorter. So how important are short films right now for people that are trying to break in?
0: Well, that's a good question. I'm just going to step sideways for a second and just say, the, what, you know, because when you said that costs a lot of money, it reminded me, that is another issue with this industry is oftentimes people who have family money and can afford to pay for their first feature or pay for their first short you know those people have a huge leg up because they can just you know they can ask their parent or their cousin or whatever hey can you loan me two hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is to make this movie and so that part also really sucks you know that people from uh less you know not having as padded of wallets you know have to work their way up the ladder in a different way unfortunately mm-hmm. but to answer your question how important are short films i mean I don't totally know. I'm not a short film person. Again, I stand by what I said before, that there's not one path, you know, for some people they made 20 short films and then they got a huge feature and that's great. And for some people they made no short films and just started out making feature. And, you know, so again, it really depends. I like short films, but I'm not like, a. am not totally, I'm much more, my mind is much more feature. Like I, as you can see, I like to talk a lot. I ramble. <laughs> my mind really goes like to the long form. Um, stories. Now, the only reason why I did a short was because I participated in the um, AFI, the American Film Institute's Directing Workshop for Women. And in that program, you have to make a short film. And so I took a feature script that I'd written, and I just kind of chopped it up and put some scenes together and, you know, sent that for my submission. And then I got in. And so then I I made that short film, which was How Does It Start, my film, which was at Sundance two years ago. Um, But I still am going to make the feature of that. You know, I mean, certainly my getting into Sundance really helped my career. But I don't, like, it would have helped even more had I made a feature that got into Sundance. Right. So, I don't know. I just think it's, like, go with the stories that are yearning to come out of you, whether they're shorts or features. I made a feature first. I made three features before I made a short. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't have an answer for that. Sorry.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's funny. that The difference between short films and features is... Uh in my experience, talking to filmmakers is very spot on. I I interviewed an Oscar-winning film director, Raika Zetabchi, who directed Period, End of Sentence. It was on Netflix, and it was about the basically delivering feminine hygiene products to rural villages in India.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah.
1: And uh, Raika produced and directed that film with her boyfriend, Sam, and they won an Oscar for it. And they they were joking. I, I interviewed them twice, but they're joking about you know, the difference between the short film folks and the feature film f- folks is basically you know, the short film folks after the Oscar ceremony are getting into a Honda Civic yeah. that they did not valet park. <laughs> and yes, you get recognition sometimes if you're lucky, but it's tough with a short film to really be heard and seen and taken seriously in a larger sense, in a sense that you're actually going to break into Hollywood.
0: I mean, I think you know, I mean, it's almost sort of like what Quibi tried to do, right? It's like these short little, little bites. Um, I think for whatever reason, mainstream audiences are not yet tapped into watching short films on a regular basis. Right. And I don't know if that's a marketing issue or like a platform issue. I mean, you know, with Quibi, I, I don't think they, I think it was all new content, but I, um, I wonder what would have happened if they put a bunch of short films up on there. You know, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I tend to watch them. If my friends make a short film, I'll watch them. Yeah. But um, but yeah, they're harder to find uh, usually because I mean, I, it, I think from a business standpoint, it's shorter. People are not going to maybe pay as much money to buy it. So then therefore distributors are not going to put as much money into the marketing of them, you know? So I don't know where the sort of break in the chain happens, but I, certainly, I mean, there are amazing short films out there. Amazing, you know? And I wish that I could see more of them because, you know, I don't, I think there are really cool platforms that have them. And and sadly, we're also used to just like, you know, Netflix, HBO, you know, whatever the platforms that are just right there on our TV and watching those, Mm -hmm. it takes, as you said, you know, our attention span to change, to switch to a slightly different platform, but maybe watching short films all the time would be bad for our attention spans because you know, it's already hard enough to get through a two hour movie, let alone a three hour movie, you know, I
1: think, I think what's really hard about short films. Is, uh, and this question <laughs> turned into a, a long, long uh, <laughs> colloquy here. So sorry about that. But, you know, my observation about short films is it's really hard to make a good one.
2: Mm.
1: Like one that has a beginning, a middle, and an end and a resolution, like most narrative films have, and, you know, fe- or feature length films, I should say. So that's hard to do. Plus, they're new filmmakers by definition. So that's a challenge to put it together in a way that's really going to resonate with audiences. But I think legally, too, I I interviewed a director of a short film. Her name is Jess Brunetto. And she's a film editor by day, but she cobbled together a crew and some money. And Sarah Burns is in it. uh, It's called Sisters. But she made it into South by Southwest Mm -hmm. and a bunch of other film festivals. And it's great. It is a great film. And I was like, how can you watch this? And I think, I think it was like, there was MailChimp sponsored something where you could watch these films on their website or something for a limited time. And yeah. there needs to be a platform. And I think I was interviewing the director of the Aspen Short Fest, Susan Rubel is her name. And I said, why don't they create a Netflix called Short Flix? Yeah. Just, you know, just have.
0: Did she say that was Quibi? <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. She just said, whatever. if. Whatever. Go, go raise the funding and do it, Brian.
0: <laughs> they could just have a channel, you know, I mean, in some, you know, like Disney plus has that going. They have a lot of, you know, all the Pixar shorts. my kids love watching those.
1: Oh, those are great. Those are great.
0: Yeah. So it's like, I, you just have to make it easy for, for people to get them yeah. and find them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, well, I want you to watch my short until and next time we talk, you can tell me it's called how does it start?
1: How does it start? Okay.
0: I'll have Emma send you, it's just on Vimeo, you know, Vimeo stuff, picks or something. Okay. I'll have her send you the link and you can see.
1: I look forward to seeing it.
0: No worries if you
1: don't. <laughs> no, I will absolutely watch it. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if you ask me to. So, <laughs> Amber Seeley, thank you so much for talking to me about the movie, No Man of God, and sharing your story with us.
0: Thank you. It was really, really fun. Thanks, Brian.
1: You know, I didn't ask, is it a theatrically released movie and will it be available for video on demand?
0: Yeah, it's coming out tomorrow, uh and it is okay. a theatrically released movie. It's playing in 10, I think 10 or 12 cities starting tomorrow. And and it is also it's what's called day date, so it's also going to be available because of the pandemic. We wanted to make sure people who like me like to stay home during the pandemic. So it's also going to be on, you know, iTunes and Amazon and Vudu, Roku, you know, all the places where you can buy
1: Oh, great. Fantastic. Well, when this launches, I'm going to put in the show notes all of the links to where they can go watch the movie and your social media contacts. And thanks again. Good luck with the uh, premiere of this movie.
0: Thanks so much, appreciate it.
1: Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favor to ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at dreampathpod. And as always, go find your dream path.